welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Harriet Minter, journalist, speaker, broadcaster and coach. Harriet was the founder of the Guardian's Women in Leadership initiative. She has written about leadership, diversity and the future of work for publications ranging from The Times to Marie Claire and Psychologies. She presents Badass Women Bar for Talk Radio, has given two TEDx talks and currently has two new books out, Great TED Talks Leadership, an unofficial guide to words of wisdom from 100 TED speakers and WFH, How to Build a Career You Love When You're Not in the Office. She talked to me about how to work out what you want and building a brand, even when the idea of it makes you wince. Well, hello, Harriet. I'm delighted to have you on Work Interrupted. I am very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. My great pleasure. And I'm hoping you can give me and listeners a blast of the energy you brought to a freelancers away day you ran a couple of years ago, (laughs) where we all got to write down our goals, think about our vision for the next few years, etc., It was a great day. We usually run that sort of in November each year. And we didn't run it in November because we said, we'll see what happens. And hopefully early in the new year, we'll be able to run it again in the new year. And it'll be really fun because it's one of those things that we do really kind of more for love than money. But it's just such a beautiful, joyous, fun day to do. And obviously we're not running it right now, but hopefully a bit later. Well, let's hope so. I I loved it. Um, And when I put together my vision, it certainly didn't include a pandemic. How (laughs) how did you feel when the whole when the whole thing hit? Um, I mean, I think I was sort of a bit naive, really, because I was literally working in sort of in person up until I think I did my last in person event on the 8th of March. And then I sort of thought, oh, well, it'll be six weeks and that'll be okay. And then I thought, well, it'll be six weeks and then it'll go into the summer a bit. But it's always quiet in the summer, so that's fine. And then it was really quiet in the summer. Like, oh, <laughs> um, uh, this is a bit more worrying. Um, but then actually, when I look back at last year, lots of really great stuff happened. And I remember a friend of mine years ago saying to me, Um, I was having a quiet period at work. There just wasn't a lot of work on. And she said to me, she's like, maybe the whole point of having a quiet period is to do something other than work. And so that's sort of how I looked at last year. I looked at it as maybe this was a period when I was supposed to do something other than just put my head down and work. So that's the lens that I sort of tried to look at it through. Didn't always work, but I did try. Well, I think think for freelancers in particular I mean obviously yeah. lots of people just went straight to working from home which we will talk about at mm-hmm. length because that of course is the topic of your new book but I think you know for example speaking was a, I imagine quite a big part mm-hmm. of your revenue stream and yeah. events and uh, it, maybe it was helpful or maybe it wasn't helpful to you to realize that this was going to be a very very big chunk of time I mean who knows I think it's unlikely we'll get any conferences certainly this year no um you know who knows but so it sounds as if you were not sort of overly worried about the financial implications at first because you had uh, 
unlike me, quite an optimistic assessment of how long it would last. I mean, I am always naively optimistic about things. <laughs> just like, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. And I think it's because when I was growing up, my parents basically never had any money. So they never had any money. And my mum just had this mantra, which was, when we really need it, it will come from somewhere. And she was actually really pretty good at magicking up money <laughs> when it had to happen. And she really instilled that in me and my sister. And I, I definitely have this as a belief. And I, I, we talk about this actually on the Freelancer Away Day, where I say that actually I really believe that somewhere someone has money and it's just about working out how to get them to give it to you. And um, and so, the, I mean, though I'm not going to lie, like the, there was a point where my bank account was empty. You know, my mm-hmm. bank account was empty. There was nothing booked. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I, I don't actually know what I'm going to do now. And when that happens, you sort of have to... The, you have to kind of take one of two attitudes, which is you have to really either like just kick on and be like, I will create something and hope someone buys it and hope I can make a little bit of money somewhere. And I will sit down and be really brutally honest with myself about all the stuff that I am currently shelling out on that I don't need. And I will just cut back on it. And I will say, actually, I don't need this. And we are going to budget on this. And it's not going to happen like this. And I will have to say goodbye to that. And I did both those things and I had about three months where it was really quite tight and then things started to pick up again. And it was because I gave myself a bit of breathing space because I cut everything down and because I was like, okay, this is, you know, nose to the grindstone now, right now, you have to call everyone, you know, and <laughs> ask them for some work. And I have no shame about this either. <laughs> Just really like, hi, I'm broke. Do you have anything? Um, you have to call everyone you know, you have to put yourself out there, you have to pitch some stuff that you don't feel is ready, you have to uh, be as visible as you can in the hope that somebody goes, oh, do you know what, we should talk to Harriet about that. Very interesting. It's very hard. easy. This this was it's one of the hard. things that I, 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 I'm so impressed by it because this was one of the things I noticed when you ran that course. And as a result of that course, I, I had some coaching from you mm-hmm. and you were great. And the key Thank reason you. I wanted that was because I thought, oh, here's someone from a journalistic background who knows how to make money. <laughs> <laughs> because most journalists are as you know extremely on yeah. on entrepreneurial in fact if anything we kind of tend to think money's a bit dirty yeah we don't, that's you know, weird the, issues journal- around there, don't we yeah, yeah journalism is quite badly paid mostly mm-hmm. and freelance journalism is appallingly paid mostly yeah. And we're not used to asking for pay rises. You don't generally get them, even if you do mm-hmm. ask for them. And yeah. also, you're kind of used to treating the business world, unless you are a business journalist, with you know rather a lot of disdain. Deep suspicion. Yeah. So, so I thought here, here is a woman who can teach me how to make some money. Now, unfortunately, I didn't follow very much of your advice. but you know what when we work together so I always say to everyone I'm coaching with I'm like look this is how much it costs to coach me with me and I'm not going to say that um you know you should or shouldn't pay it but it is I will be honest I've never worked with anyone who hasn't made it back Mm. and when we were coaching I was like oh my god am I going to let Christina down on this (laughs) I'm actually going to let her down and then I remember you turning up to a coaching session you were like well I've just booked this speaking gig and I just asked them for this amount of money because you told me that's how much I should ask for and they just said yes yes 
exactly and it, exactly and it covered the cost of the coaching so it, <laughs> exactly my, right. record, my record remains intact <laughs> <laughs> Your record, I'm sure, is entirely intact. But it's it's very interesting because I think this is a fundamental thing that many of us mm. just don't get taught about, which is how to make money, particularly if you're a freelancer. I was brought up, my mother was a teacher, my father was a diplomat who then became a civil servant. It was all about yeah. public service. The idea of promoting yourself in any way at all would have been utterly alien to both yeah. of them. And uh, But that's not the world we're in now. And I'm I'm interested in in your book one of the things you talk about is personal brand and you yeah. say that you know most of us would you know the idea just makes you want to kind of stay under the duvet forever <laughs> um you know we all or most of us most sane modest normal people absolutely hate the idea oh, of horrifying. I hate you know, it. building a personal brand and promoting yeah. yourself but as you also say it's not it's not really optional nowadays mm -hmm. I mean if you're in a job then maybe you can get away with having minimal social media but you still have a brand but if you're freelance you absolutely have to build a brand or at least be aware of what a brand is and how to develop it the fact that for example all your social media is professional and uh, mm -hmm. I mean I'm quite careful about that I, I don't say very much it's personal on any of my social media um, because I don't mostly because I don't think it's very interesting to anyone but, but also because I don't really want to kind of you know emote about my private life on social media though some mm -hmm. people do do it brilliantly and all credit to them I'm not I'm not sneering at them I just don't mm -hmm. feel very comfortable doing that for the most part mm -hmm. but I wonder if you could say a bit about what you say about that whole concept of personal brand and what you say in the book about it well, the book by the way the book by the way is called WFH work working from home and uh, how to build a career you love when you're not in the office and we'll talk a lot more about it later but I, I do want to hear more about the personal brand idea well so the thing about personal brand and I say this in the book is you know a for a start as a phrase I have been trying for years to rebrand the phrase personal brand because it is so icky and it really I think smacks of kind of you know, that multi-level marketing type guru thing. But one of the things that I would say about it is that personal brand is not optional because whether you want to have a personal brand or not, you have one. And quite often it's not created by you. It's created by the people you work with or the people that you socialize with or the people who have worked with somebody who you've worked with. And really what we mean by personal brand is, is what people are saying about you when you're not in the room. And I think as much as possible, we want to have a level of control over that. So we want to be able to say, actually, I know who I am. I know the impact that I want to put across and I know what I want other people to think about me. And actually, a little bit of this is, as you say, you know, on social media, you don't want to be somebody who is putting out every emotion they have on their Instagram feed. And I completely, you know, back that I absolutely understand that feeling. And that's part of your personal brand. Part of your personal brand says, actually, there is a level of access that you get to me that at that point, the access stops. And I have, over the years, taught lots and lots of people about personal brand. And for me, what it really comes down to is, um, first of all, knowing who you are. So not just, you know, hello, I'm Harriet Minter, but actually knowing this is me as a person. This is what I'm like as a person. This is how I behave. These are the characteristics I bring. This is the energy I bring. This is the type of stuff that I do. And then it's what do you do? 
And very often people will say, well, what I do is, and then they'll give you a job title. And actually, that's never what you do. So what you actually do is you make change for somebody. You have an impact in some way. You move something from one place to another. You perhaps make people feel a certain way. It's really about the impact that you have. And then finally, how do you do it? So the how you do it is kind of the style you bring to it. So if I was to give you an example of all of that, and I'll give you a kind of my personal brand statement, I find, you know, I'll say this and then I will have to take a moment and just re- kind of recoil from the shame of it. But, I, you know, I would say I am, so I am a journalist, broadcaster and coach, and I help people have amazing working lives that they love because work should be a passion, not a chore. And I do it with energy, excitement, enthusiasm, and absolutely no bullshit. And that's, then that's what I try and bring to everything I do. And part of that is owning, you know, that, for example, I always say to people, you know, when you work with me, I might make you cry. And that's, if you're not okay with that, then I am not the right person for you. And the lovely thing about that is that then you just work with people who get you. Mm. And you don't have to work with people who don't get you, which is when work gets really hard. Very interesting. One of the stories you tell in your book is when you, I think in one of your early jobs, then you have a, had a colleague who said, oh, yeah. my name's Ollie and I do strategy. <laughs> and uh, and so, of course, he got all the interesting strategy work and everybody else got all the boring stuff. And, and then you discovered that he actually had pretty much the same job as you, but he yeah. managed to kind of waft away most of it because he said he did something else. I mean, I was furious on your behalf when I read that. Uh, because it's a level of chutzpah that I find um, just, you know, kind of unjust and irritating and so on. But clearly it served him very well. And and you said, I think a, hmm. a few times, most recently in the podcast I listened to that you were on, that you um, had kind of learnt how to, if not brag, then sort of, you know, big yourself up in a work yeah. context, or at least, uh, no, there's a phrase for it. There's certainly one phrase is the proceed until apprehended in mm-hmm. uh, one of your TEDx talks. But um I can't remember the phrase you used for it, but was that did Ollie teach you that lesson or how did you learn um, it? Do you know, I think it's something that you learn a bit over time. So I remember when I worked with, with Ollie and I realised, this moment of realisation when I realised that this guy who went around telling everyone he did strategy had never been hired to do strategy. <laughs> but he just decided that was what he wanted to do. And he realised if he told people that was what he did, everyone would then give him that work, which was just, mm. I mean... And I remember being, you know, as you said, absolutely furious, like furious that he had done this. And then having this moment where I was like, well, Harriet, you can either sit here and be furious with him and be like, this is so bad and so awful and so unjust. Or you can say, do you know what? Enough now. Enough sitting at my desk and being a good girl and working hard and doing everything right and being passed over for the stuff that I want. And I have to actually accept that if I want things, I am going to have to tell people I want them. Mm -hmm. And people are not going to know if I don't tell them. And in the book, I talk about this idea that most of us assume that if we asked our boss, what do you think I want for my career? Your boss would absolutely know. And of course, they won't. If you ask your boss, what do you think I want for my career? Your boss is almost certainly going to tell you, either what they think you should do or what they would do they are not going to know what you want until you actually say it and so 
the thing I realized when I was kind of in this place in my career where I was really frustrated and I was taking that frustration and resentment out on everyone else, you know, anyone who was successful, I was just hugely jealous of, I was so jealous of them. And then I said, I was like, actually, I'm jealous at not doing X, Y, and Z, but I haven't told anyone I want to do it. I haven't asked for anyone's help. I haven't said to anyone, do you think I could? Um, I haven't just put it out there and said, actually, I am doing this. And so I'm sitting here being furious because other people have things that I want, but I am not claiming that want. And until I actually claim it and say, this is me, this is what I do, and this is where I want to be going, I can't blame the rest of the world for not helping me out. And how uncomfortable did you feel when you started doing that? And how comfortable do you feel doing that now? Mm, Great question. Um, I mean, it's horrible. It's like, I'm not going to lie. It's horrible. (laughs) It's it's totally awful. I actually had a phone call this morning with somebody who was like, tell me what you want. And I like went to like my fourth option. And I was like, how are you? What are you doing? And I had to say, actually, if I'm being honest, what I really want is, and, you know, completely jettison the idea I just given them and go off on another tangent but it's it is hard I'm not gonna lie it is hard but it is easier with practice Mm. and the other thing to realize and I hold this really firmly is that most of the time people want to help and we make it easier for people to help us if we're just straight with them and Mm. so actually when we do that we then allow somebody to help us And think about the last time you helped someone. It's like the most delightful feeling. It's the most delightful feeling to be able to say, oh, actually, you want to do this. I can help you with that. Easy. No problem. Let me give you this name of this person or give you a suggestion for who to talk to or what you should do next. Easy. There you go. Piece of help. We really like helping people. And so actually, by being clear about what we want, we are helping someone else have that lovely feeling of helping us. Well, I would say that's a fine line, because if you're freelance, you get an awful lot of people basically asking for your uh, unpaid consultancy Mm -hmm. and advice an awful lot. You know, I I can sometimes spend hours replying to people's emails and and then end up fuming with resentment because I'm thinking, well, no one paid me anything today. And why should you have that for free? I got a message over the weekend from someone never even met her you know can I have a chat I want to ask your advice about x and I thought no why should you it's my weekend why should I give you advice on something I know nothing about when I've never even met you so I mean where where does all that feature in the picture well I mean that's absolutely right right so there is a line and there are boundaries so I talk about boundaries the whole way through the book I'm a little bit obsessed with boundaries and boundaries are an ongoing lesson for me because I am a kind of um uh, a people pleaser in recovery you know so I'm, I'm I spend a lot of time being like oh of course I can help you of course I can give you this of course I can do that and wearing myself out with it and so a lot of my adult life has been about learning how to set boundaries and where I look at it is I say is it going to be easy for me to help this person is there something about this person that makes me want to help them mm. and is it going to in some way benefit me in the wider scheme of things and that benefit you know sometimes we feel that's a bit manipulative to say it what's in it for me but actually what's in it for me might be that I'm going to do something nice today for somebody that's going to make me feel good it might be actually do you know what they might end up being really brilliant at that thing and when they do they can bring me along with them 
or it might be actually it's just nice to pay something forward and I'm going to do that and I'm going to trust that you know on a hippy dippy scale the universe is going to send something my way but Mm. what I don't do is do it at my own expense and that's the really important bit so I'm really clear like somebody emailed me um last week I have no idea who this person was they sent an email through my website being like I'm trying to become a journalist please can you give me your top tips on what I should do (laughs) I was like no I can't I don't know you I don't know if it's going to be helpful for you I don't think it's going to be helpful for me my to-do list for this week is very very full and so I am going to say politely but respectfully this is not for me thank you no and that's my boundary my boundary was I don't have time for this it's not giving me something that I can use right now And quite frankly, I am not the only person out there that can give you this advice. Google can give you this advice. Exactly, exactly. Um, So set the boundary and be like, this is what I am able to give. And after that, it is very much okay to say no. Mm. Mm. And that's sometimes where we get into problems, isn't it? Because we feel like we can't say no. So then we say yes, and then we feel really resentful of it. Yes, and I, like many freelancers, could spend all day answering emails doing social media mm-hmm. and all that stuff and never earn a penny you know yep. if I if I didn't prioritize the work that that actually earned some money and then of course you know one is freelance because presumably there are creative interesting things one wants to do which may or may not be particularly well paid but that's the reason you're freelance in order to have the, the choice and Absolutely. the freedom, freedom. Um, so I wondered uh, you, you talk about the management of social media in terms of personal brand and so on in the book but can you say a bit about kind of I mean it's difficult because it's a a professional obligation that Mm -hmm. is also extremely time consuming unpaid and can become an addiction so can you say a bit about how how one can manage that um do you know what I always think when I think about social media I always think Phoebe Waller-Bridge doesn't do social media and she wrote Mm -hmm. Fleabag and she's I think on record saying that she doesn't do social media because she just wanted to focus on the work. And mm. part of me, honestly, you know, part of me thinks maybe if I wasn't on social media, I too would have written Fleabag. But I suspect <laughs> yes. that's not true. <laughs> um, um, so, well, Kaz- Kazuo Ishiguro isn't on social media is, either. Oh, right. I mean, who knows what amazing pieces of work we could be creating. Um, but I think for the majority of us for the vast majority of us it is part of building your reputation and also part of building your connections and your network and particularly as we work more and more remotely it's really important to find ways to connect with people and to build up and expand our network because quite often that's where we find work from Mm. so one of the kind of boundaries that I have around social media is I say well you know social media is not fun social media is work and so we treat it in the same way as you would a piece of work which means that you have a specific amount of time that you're going to spend on it that you have some specific goals that you want to achieve with it and that you measure and track your performance on it Um, Mm. and that doesn't mean you measure and track how many likes did my photo get or how many times have I been retweeted but it does mean that actually if your goal was I'm going to connect with five editors so that I can get one piece published in the next month well, did you connect with those five editors and have you got that one piece published? Mm. Um, And really understanding that it's a tool to help you do the job. It's not something to become enslaved to. 
you know you have to make it work for you and that is really hard because I'm sure we have all spent hours death scrolling our way through Instagram but I keep coming back to it and I you know I say this what is it do as I say not as I do but I keep coming back to being like I have to make the choice is it a tool that I want to use or do I want to be used by it Mm. and I don't want to be used by it I became a freelancer because I didn't want to have a boss and I'm not about to make social media my boss Mm. it's interesting you you also mentioned I think on Instagram actually uh doing a five-day LinkedIn challenge because Mm -hmm. I think again most former yeah. journalist I mean you're a business person who became a journalist who, who, who <laughs> was partly a business and is now a business yeah. person again and also a journalist so yeah. uh, when I say journalist it's a, oh, it's well, a shorthand all the hacks. yeah it, all that it's a shorthand but um you mentioned this LinkedIn five-day mm. challenge because yeah. most journalists I think you know they just don't see the point of LinkedIn it just doesn't oh, feature in I, our world but it absolutely does for the corporate world for mm-hmm. any non-journalism related world and yeah. how, how did your five-day challenge go and are you learning to love LinkedIn? Do you know what it was really interesting it really pushed me out of my comfort zone and it was interesting to be pushed out of my comfort zone that's what I would say is the you know, sometimes when we are resistant to doing stuff, we can find all these very legitimate reasons for why we shouldn't be doing, oh, it's not, mm. it's not worth it. It's not good for me. It's not useful for me. I could be doing something else or else. And actually, sometimes we're just a bit scared of it. And that was definitely me with LinkedIn. So what it taught me was that actually all the same rules that apply to social media, all other forms of social media apply to LinkedIn, that people still want people so even though LinkedIn feels incredibly corporate actually the stuff that people respond to is still personal Mm. and then also that it's good sometimes to be just really frank and honest so part of the LinkedIn challenge was to do what's called a call to action and they were really clear that your call to action should be this is who I am this is what I offer this is how much it costs and you need to book it by this time Oh my God, absolute nightmare. Horror. I, would have had to feel like, <laughs> I think I had to have a really large gin before I could do it. Um, but I booked a load of work off it. Really? Yes. And so, and that's. What, what kind of work, Harriet? It was speaking. So wow. I booked two speaking gigs and I had two further inquiries. And do you know what? I. And I, and I really, I really felt really uncomfortable with it. I felt deeply, deeply uncomfortable with it. And I've done a couple of other calls to action since, and I haven't been able to put the money on it again because I'm just so uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> but, and also because part of me is like, well, what if I say it's this price, but somebody comes along and they've got more money and all this stuff mm. that I know to be completely untrue and not how to run a business. But all of it goes through your mind because you're uncomfortable with something. Mm. Um, and it is... I think it is, it's never going to be, you know, LinkedIn for me is never going to be a, a place that feels like home. It's never going to be a place that feels comfortable. But in a way, it allows me to wear one of those many hats. So mm. it allows me to wear my corporate hat. It allows me to be kind of like, this is the more professional side of me. This is the bit where I'm not going to talk about, um, you know, my hippy dippy energy spiel and how your sex life influences your working life and all that jazz. <laughs> Um, this is the bit where I'm you haven't I haven't heard that before so perhaps you could give us that version now. it's so much more fun that bit's way more fun talking about that stuff but you know LinkedIn is like well here's actually let's put on our professional hat let's think about the future of work let's think about the future of business which is stuff that I am interested in mm. and so it gives space for that I think there is something to be said, um, and I do say this in the book, which is right, you don't try and be on every social media platform. 
at the same level. You know, find find your audience, find the one that works for you, find the one that is going to really help you with your career and put some time and attention into mastering that. And for me, doing that LinkedIn challenge was a great way of saying, do you know what, here's a platform that I haven't mastered and I'm going to give it some time and attention and see what comes from it. And in terms of making some money, I got a good response so I can give it more time and attention. And also I can remember that I do not know it all and sometimes it is good to be outside my comfort zone doing something new. Mm, Very interesting. And you mentioned in your job, that early job, and Mm. particularly in relation to Ollie, envy. And I I think one of the, as we all know, social media is a kind of nightmare. You just have to go on it and look at, you know, everybody who's doing Mm -hmm. whatever it is you want to be doing, but times 100 paid 10 times more than you. And, um, you know, with sort of 6 million more readers, followers, whatever. And, um, but, and all of that, doesn't feel very positive to be honest Mm -hmm. um on the other hand I suppose that envy can help you realize what it is you want in life and I just wondered what what you as a as a coach really Mm. would say about envy and managing envy and whether it can be channeled into more positive directions yeah absolutely I think envy is is a useful tool for us to look at what we want So quite often when I'm working with people and, you know, when I'm coaching with somebody, one of the first things I do is sit down with them and be like, okay, what do you want to get out of this coaching? Why are you here? If if you could achieve anything at the end of it, what would that be? And lots and lots of people have real difficulty articulating that. Particularly, and this is not to be sexist, but particularly women, because we are still unfortunately societally ingrained to not talk about what we want. And so... When it comes to envy, envy can be a really good, a a kind of guiding light. And I'll give you the example of this. So many, many years ago, my best friend had been headhunted for a job and the head office for the job she'd been headhunted for was in LA. And so they had flown her out to LA for her final interview and they had flown her back business class and she had sat next to uh, the actor who plays Mr. Big from Sex and the City. (laughs) Yeah. And, and she was, we'd gone out for dinner and we were asking how it went and she told us this story. And I remember, and she's my, you know, my best, best friend. And I remember being so happy for her that she'd had this incredible experience of being flown around the world for a job interview and then sat next to a film star on the way back. And also absolutely eaten up inside with Mm. jealousy, Mm. eaten up inside by it. And I was seeing a therapist at the time. So I went to my therapy session and I told her this. And I said, and I feel like the most horrible person. I, you know, how can I feel like that about my best friend? I only want good things for her. And yet here I am feeling really bitter that she got to have this great experience. Um, my therapist said to me, she said, what we have to understand about envy is just because you want something doesn't mean you don't also want it for someone else if the universe turned around to you now and said you can have that exact same experience but you have to take it away from your best friend would you take it and I said no absolutely not and she said exactly she said because you are not sitting here being like I don't want you to have that you just want a bit of it too and it is okay to want that And that was a really sort of profound experience for me because it was the first time anyone had said to me, it is okay to want that. Mm. 
and very interesting we are really not allowed to just own our own desires and this this is where sex comes into work right because actually so much of our lives we are told not to own our desire to not say what we really want to not say actually that doesn't work for me or I need more of this or actually what I really want is this and so we keep quiet about it and the more we keep quiet about our desire the more we then tend to find actually that envy and that jealousy perks up when we see somebody else getting Mm. I know you you ran a retreat didn't you with some people but obviously not Mm. uh, not this new year because (laughs) such things were not possible but the new year before was and that was for women was that one of the sort of central themes really about knowing what you desire I mean I think every time I work with women it becomes a central theme because there is so much um you know, there is so much conditioning in all our lives, not just in women's lives, but in all our lives. But there is particularly for women, a lot of conditioning where we are taught, you know, if somebody says, oh, you're good at that, then you should do more of it. So go where people are going to praise you, go where people are going to tell you it's the right thing, or you're being a good girl, or you're doing the right thing, or congratulations, or you're so clever, or you're so smart, or you're so beautiful, whatever the praise is, right? We teach women to go for the praise. And what happens is that we then kind of end up chasing other people's dreams for us rather than our own dreams. And in doing that, we lose track of what our own dreams were. So a lot of, and particularly that retreat actually that I ran, which was just a really beautiful, beautiful experience. But a lot of the work is, yeah, it comes back down to actually, what do you want? What do you want? Own it, claim it. Don't be ashamed or embarrassed of it. Learn how to you know, not care if actually it doesn't meet everybody else's expectations for what they think you should want. Just own it and go for it. And that that way, I think, is even if we don't get it, we feel a level of completion because we're kind of being true to who we are instead of trying to be somebody that someone thinks we should be. Mm. One of your passions, it seems to me, is is freedom. I think that's mm, one of your yeah. central values. And, and of course, you've written this book about working from home, which in normal times would be yeah. about freedom, having the freedom mm-hmm. to choose how you work. But obviously, currently and for the last year, <laughs> not been that. Not so much at the moment, yeah. What, what was the impetus for the book and how, how did it come about? Um, well, so actually, it's really interesting. So you're totally right and incredibly perceptive. But my my core value always is freedom. So I always know that I am in trouble or almost certainly going to do a job badly or behave badly when that value is in some way challenged. And so I have always been a massive proponent of working out how to make work work for you. So I've worked from home since about kind of early 2005, 2006. Um, which was quite early in the, the working from home thing. But um, I've worked from home. I've worked flexible hours. I have I am, have been notorious for either being in the office really early or really late and leaving really early or really late. You know, I'm, I'm much, much happier when I get to set my own agenda. And so as a coach and in my coaching life, that's one of the things I talk about all the time, particularly for people's careers, which is actually most of us, have ended up in jobs that we haven't really given a lot of thought to 
So at some point, somebody's told us we were really good at something and we've gone, oh yeah, I'm quite good at it. And oh, that looks quite interesting. And I'll go and do that for a bit and see what happens. And if we're lucky, we love it. And if we're not lucky, we end up doing a job that we're like, oh, how how did this happen? And so I'm really passionate about basically helping people identify what their values are and how they live those values through their work which is such coach speak now that I've said it I'm like oh god Harriet honestly Um, (laughs) but essentially what that means is being honest about who you are getting in touch with as mentioned those desires and bringing them to your working life and so because I talk about that a lot and because I bang on about how actually the concept that we all have to be in one office at the exact same time is something that was created 100 years ago by Henry Ford and most of us should realize it doesn't really work for 21st century working lives um a publisher actually approached me and said you know we think this working from home trend that currently everyone's doing because of the pandemic but we think it's going to last longer and if it is going to last longer we all need to know basically how do we have a career when we are working from home because traditionally what people have seen working from home as is actually I want more flexibility I want to step back I'm not as engaged I'm not as ambitious I want to spend more time with my kids I want to spend more time with my dog whatever it is and so working from home has become the kind of thing you do when you want to take your foot off the career pedal and what my publisher noticed which is actually very brilliant so full credit to them she was like actually if we all now have to work from home in some way, shape or form, probably not full time as we are now, but I suspect at least part of the time, but we're still ambitious and we still want to get promoted and we want to get pay rises and we want to have amazing careers. Well, that doesn't fit with this narrative that working from home is just for people who've taken their foot off the career accelerator. Mm. So how do we manage the two? And that was really where the idea for the book came from and, it was really lovely to be able, and I sort of said to her, I was like, look, I'm really happy to talk about, you know, how to work from home and the best way to do it and all that jazz. But actually what this book really has to be about is how do we use this period in time to be like, oh, hang on, if I got to design my working life, if I got to pick what it looks like, if I got to set the rules around it, how would my working life be? And that's what the book helped you do, I hope. Well, it's it's full of brilliant tips about how to work from home. Well, various categories, people who just have to work from home because everybody has to. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. with a, a white collar job yeah. basically has to work from home at the moment. And obviously, I don't want to forget for a moment the people who are keeping us alive and risking their lives yeah. daily. But uh, but you and I are not in that category. So just those of us who are sitting in front of a computer all day it's very helpful for people to just kind of how to manage that and retain some humanity and human contact and so on. And for those who want to work from home long-term, but also for those who don't particularly want to work from home, but who do want to develop their career and perhaps haven't been as in touch as they would like to be about um, the directions they would like that to go in. I mean, my, my question really is about, and I know I'm speaking to an optimist. <laughs> and as you know, Harriet, that is not the category that I personally fall into. Um, we are about to, obviously lots of people have been on furlough and we are mm-hmm. about to be facing major economic challenges and yeah. probably a significant rise in unemployment. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to have your dreams and to be in touch with your desires. But for many people, those are going to feel 
you know, quite distant in mm-hmm. the certainly in the short and medium term. And for people, older people in particular, men and women over 50, but let's focus on women since women is stroke are your speciality. Yeah. What tips would you give to women over 50 who are losing their jobs now? Because I was 49 when I lost my job and that was hard enough. But uh, and that but in an industry where I knew I wouldn't get another one because, you know, it's in decline. We know the statistics are very brutal. It's very tough if you lose your job as a woman over 50 to get reemployed. What would your key tips be? So my first thing would be remind yourself of your value and do that every single day. So this might be um, printing out before you leave your company, print out all the emails that anyone has ever sent you where they've said a nice thing about you. It might be writing a list of all the things you've done that you're really proud of. It might be um, getting your best friend to give you a pep talk on all the things they remember that you've done that you should be really proud of. Whatever it is, get that in place somewhere where you are going to be able to see it regularly. Because one of the things that I think everyone finds, completely regardless of age, gender, etc., when you're unemployed, it can become very, very easy, very quickly to forget your value. Mm. And just because one particular employer doesn't want you at one point does not mean that your value has decreased. It hasn't. You still did the brilliant things. You still contributed. You still gave yourself and created amazing things. So your value remains the same. And your value is not dependent on somebody wanting to employ you at a certain moment in time. So that's the first thing. Really, really get that in place. So shore up that confidence because there are going to be days where you don't feel like you have the value. And so you need to be able to read it and remind yourself as quickly as you possibly can. Um, The second thing is understand that actually maybe work is not going to look like what it did before. And so start to divide what you were doing from how you were doing it so what I mean by that is um, identifying really the parts of your job that you loved and what it was that you loved about them so for example if you were a project manager and you absolutely loved being a project manager and it really filled you with joy and you were just brilliant at it and you're like I just want to be a project manager again but there are no project manager jobs that can feel really dispiriting But if you look at it as actually as a project manager and I loved it because I am really goal focused and I love getting to that goal and getting stuff done. And I love being part of a team and ensuring that everyone in that team knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And I love having clear timeframes. And that's actually really helpful for me. That's how I like to work. Then you can identify those things and start to look for those things maybe in other places. Because actually what we're learning is you didn't love your job title you didn't love being a project manager you loved the parts that went into it that made it up and those exist in other places as well Um, and then thirdly really really call on rely on ask for help and call up your peers call up the people that throughout your career maybe you helped or they helped you or you just got along or you had a nice time or actually you didn't really like them but perhaps they've got something now is the point to build up that network so reach out to people be open be honest be clear about what you want like I said right back at the beginning 
most of the time people love to help but you have to be clear about what it is you want help with and ask for that help because unless people know what you want they are not going to be able to give it to you and what you might find is that you are asking for help and people don't have anything at that moment in time but three months down the line six months down the line they go oh hang on do you know what I should really call so-and-so and ask them because this has just come in and they'd be great for it. Mm. Um, and if we, if we think about ourselves and when we're at our best, very, very few of us are at our best when we disconnect from everyone. And we can do that, particularly if we are out of work and we're feeling a level of shame about that. We think, oh my God, I'm the only person that doesn't have a job. I'm the only person that is currently unemployed. I'm the only person that's finding it hard to find a job in the current climate. It's not true. It's really not. You know, we have all had periods of unemployment. Um, I personally have definitely been sacked. So I refuse to believe that anyone else, you are not the only person who's been sacked. I have been sacked. We have all had periods where we feel like we are not good enough or that it's not going to turn around and get better. So just being honest about that is not going to is not going to affect you right so reach out and talk to people about it because sitting at home by yourself thinking oh my god it's just me that's the easiest way to stay in a spiral that you don't get out of well that's I agree with all of that although sitting at home by yourself is the only option for about eight billion people <laughs> this is true. So, so, socially distanced walks um, or even like you know this is really where actually in a weird way if you are currently unemployed, this is bizarrely the easiest time to make connections because everybody is sat at home by themselves. Mm-hmm. So weirdly, mm-hmm. what I have found is that people that I would not have been able to get hold of in a million years at other times are sat at home desperate for a conversation. Mm, <laughs> so how interesting. Actually, pinging an email to that person you thought would never apply, now is the time that they might and how personally have you found lockdown well I mean because obviously we're on the third lockdown yeah. at the moment has this been significantly harder than the uh, the first two or have they all been fine I mean I've gone in waves with it I think um I started dating somebody in the December before the first lockdown so we dated for like two months and then we moved in together um which is not how I would recommend doing a relationship to be honest but we are still going a year later so it's you can make it work so in a way it was quite in the first lockdown it was sunny I was in love I had something to distract myself with so it was relatively okay and as I said I was in you know total denial about how bad it was going to get um and then as it's gone on and on and on I think the thing that I am finding hard is I you know like all of us I like certainty I like certainty I like to know this is going to happen at this time in this way that's on a human level that is a a level of psychological safety that during difficult times all of us enjoy and I am at a place now where I'm like I can't I can't see really what the end of this looks like and there will be an end because there has to be but I can't see what it looks like. And I'm finding that being able to sit in the kind of the gray rather than absolutely knowing you're in the black or white, I'm finding sitting in the gray hard. But Mm. I think the only thing I do find helpful to remember is that everyone is. 
Mm. And there is something to be said for... A, a, this is a unique moment in our lifetime because we're having a collective experience with 8 billion people around the world. Yes. Yeah. I'm so pleased. I, I spotted Tom in the acknowledgements of your book, but I didn't <laughs> dare ask about it in the podcast. So I'm really pleased for you, Harriet. Oh, that's, you. Uh, that's great news. No, I put him in the acknowledgements that he was like, babe, if we break up, it's going to be really awkward. <laughs> I was like, well, there you go. No, just you're gonna to have to stay there for perpetuity now and just feel really bad if we do break up I put you in the book yes well I I had a similar thing with my my last book but anyway thank goodness we're still we're still going strong and we haven't killed each other in spite of having been locked exactly. down for like six million years or whatever it now is um, I, I wanted to ask you a bit about coaching about what hmm. what I mean, because it's one of your many hats and you're a, yeah. a very good coach. So lots of people think, oh, life coaching, isn't that a kind mm. of millennial fad about, you know, yeah. clearing out your clutter or mm -hmm. cutting out or becoming yeah. vegan or something. Tell us what a coach can do and um, and the effect it can. And Well, actually, tell why don't you tell us what effect coaching has had on you and your life? Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely was in the camp of people who thought that life coaching was essentially something you did when you had too much time and too much money and that those of us with real problems had to actually get on with life mm. um and then I had this weird experience where I was in my job and I had one of those jobs that on the surface was like an incredible job you know, people would email me and say how can I get your job it's so amazing how did you get it and I just wasn't loving it and I actually felt sort of bad for not loving this amazing job um and then I had an experience where I met sort of two or three women in a row and everyone I met I was like gosh they're really these women are really amazing and they just sort of have this glow about them and when I did some investigating I found out that they all had the same coach mm. and so I thought this is interesting and so I got in touch with her she's called Nikki Armitage Foy she runs a company called Electric Woman full disclaimer I do some work with them now but I wouldn't do if she wasn't amazing and I went and had a cup of tea with her and I said to her before we had tea I was like look I just want to be absolutely clear with you I do think coaching is slightly bullshit um but you seem great and lots of people are recommending you so let's have a cup of tea and we had a cup of tea and I just I completely just thought she was great I fell in love with her and I was like okay well I'll give this a go and we see we'll see what will happen and I think I probably thought oh I'll you know <laughs> make a vision board or something and uh, life will be quite happy and nice and that will all be fine and I coached with her for and probably first time around probably about six months and it was a it was a deeply spiritual six months and mm. that's a, a hippie thing that me the me prior to coaching would never have said it was a spiritual experience um and the upshot of it was that I ended up uh, taking redundancy from the job. You know, this amazing job that everyone was like, please don't leave it. What are you doing? You're don't be so stupid. Don't do it. And actually, I, I volunteered to take redundancy. I um, retrained as a coach because I was like, this is so this has been so monumental for me. I want to be able to offer this to other people. Um, I went freelance, which was probably my biggest fear because I'd grown up in this family where we 
never had any money and the one rule was get a proper job and have a salary so that somebody pays you every month and I had that and it was making me miserable and I finally had the guts to say I'm not doing it and I went freelance and I made more money freelancing than I ever did in a job Uh, and I was immeasurably more happy and over the years I've tackled things like my body image, I've tackled my eating habits, I've tackled relationships, I've tackled uh, currently I'm working on my very weird relationship with the medical profession and how I freak out every time I see a doctor and I'm doing that Mm. through coaching And I have to say that for me, it was about, and this sounds very trite, but it was about somebody saying, here you go, you now have the key to open up who you really are. And I'm going to be there with you while you do it. And it was life changing. I am very grateful that I got to have what is really quite a privileged experience. I got to have that. I sort of say now that one of the things that I wish we taught people in schools was I wish we taught them human psychology. I wish they, mm. we taught them how we think and feel and behave because particularly for those of us who are brought up with um, kind of beliefs around the most important thing you can be is smart. You've got to be smart. You've got to have the, all the answers. Uh, you've got to be successful. Actually, somebody kind of coming along and saying, it's okay, you don't have to be smart. You can just feel things. It's okay. <laughs> you don't have to know the answer things can just be without an answer um that was a deeply a deeply healing experience for me so I'm a I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a coaching nut I do really believe in it fascinating that said there and are talking terrible coaches out there so be a bit careful yes yeah. no I, I, I I'm sure that's true it's like therapy isn't it there are some Absolutely. terrible therapists and some great therapists I saw a therapist who changed my life and I've seen several who haven't so yeah it's kind of the luck of the draw and uh, so Harriet if there's if you had one key hope for something positive to come Mm. out of the pandemic what would it be one thing I think that has happened in this pandemic and has happened through working from home is that we have been given an insight into who the people we work with are in their personal lives we have literally been allowed to see into their lives and I think that has allowed us to see people we work with as fully rounded humans rather than just um, employees or employers. And I think that has allowed us to increase our empathy for them a little bit. And so my one hope from this pandemic is that as we come out of it, as we go back to offices, as we start to rethink about what our working lives look like in the future, that actually we can remember that all of those people that we were in a pandemic with, they are all humans with personal lives, personal problems, personal triumphs and sadnesses, and that we are just the same and we treat each other with kindness and respect. Lovely. Well, I I share that hope. Um, yeah, here's to... Here's to that, and here's to parties, and here's to oh, seeing God, you at a party, a party with a nice glass of wine. Can't wait for a party with a glass of wine. Thanks so much, Harriet. Lovely to have you on the podcast. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate, and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter where I'm at Queen Christina underscore and on Instagram where I'm at Queen Christina Writer. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, 
The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and doing work that works for all of us, and I hope you'll join me again next week.